Industry Focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. It's been a wild couple of weeks for the stock market, with stocks up nearly 10% since the start of the month following positive vaccine news. Clearly, this is good news for humanity, but what does it mean for the stock market? Are beaten down industrial stocks out of the woods yet? Motley Fool contributor Lou Whiteman joins the show to share some of his thoughts. Lou, welcome back on the podcast. Great to be here. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, just to kind of run through the vaccine news quickly for everybody on Monday, November 9th, Pfizer announced that its vaccine candidate developed in partnership with BioNTech had a 90% um, effectiveness rate on combating the coronavirus without serious complications. They've updated that since to 95% effectiveness. Then literally the next week, Moderna announced positive early data on its vaccine candidate with 95% effectiveness. Both of these are using uh, our so-called mRNA vaccines, which use a, a mRNA molecule to deliver uh, to deliver uh, the vaccine. And, and while these vaccines have been in development for years, this uh, these would be the first licensed, uh, safe, and effective vaccines used with mRNA technology. So, so very exciting uh, development. Lou, what was your reaction to the news uh, as it's come out the past couple of weeks? So it's exciting, right? It, it, the, the short answer is, wow. I mean, there's a lot that needs to be done, and especially some of the companies we're going to be talking about, it's going to be a long process to get back to normal. But it, it feels like a milestone. Even though we knew vaccines were go- out there, it feels like, okay, it's gone from just indefinite to maybe we can put a time table on it, which which is a great feeling mentally. Right. We've spent a lot of time this year uh, talking about airlines. You talk about this uncertain future and maybe the vaccine gives us a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Rem- you know, reminds me back to back in the spring, Warren Buffett talking about selling all uh, of his airline stocks because given the impacts of the coronavirus, his forecast of the future was just too vague uh, to make him comfortable uh, owning the stocks going forward. It had changed his thesis. How much clearer is the future now for airline stocks today now that we see this light at the end of the tunnel uh, with the vaccine? Well, I think the big thing that this does is assuming the vaccine comes through as we hope, it 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 gives us again, it gives us a timetable on when things could get better and it makes us more confident about the downside. I believe, assuming this happens as we hope it will, we will survive without bankruptcy. So there isn't the same risk that there was back in March that the equity values were all going to go to zero. It's still going to be a long recovery, but at least now we can start talking about what that recovery will look like instead of just watching the whole industry in chaos and, and, and gripped with uncertainty. Right. When we talk about what this recovery is going to look like, there was a quote that was going around from Bill Gates on Tuesday. This is after the vaccine news had come down, where he said he thinks in a post-coronavirus world that business travel will be down 50% or more. Obviously, business travel, very significant for airlines. What do you make of, of, of this quote? Should airlines be concerned about a decline in business travel going forward? I am, by my nature, skeptical about almost all of these predictions that nothing will come back. I, I, I don't think that that's human nature. I'm sure there will be changes. I mean, we'll just counter that with, again, a couple of very biased people, but two airline CEOs. Southwest CEO Gary Kelly, when uh, CNBC this morning said, my opinion is this too shall pass. Just like 9-11, everyone said the world was going to change. People aren't going to fly. They were wrong. Uh, Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, was talking on the earnings call about first time someone 
loses a sale that they tried to do on a Zoom call, they'll be buying an airplane ticket the next day. I I mean, I, I don't want to be too smug. I think things will change, but I do think we will see a return to business. Maybe we lose some business travel, but maybe if people are working remotely, they need to fly to check in with headquarters where they, you know, so I there could be shifts, there could be changes, but I believe Gates is off. I don't think we're going to see a 50% decline long term. So yeah, I think it's similar to kind of telehealth where, where some of people have been forced to adopt this technology. And so people are more aware of the substitutes that are out there. So maybe that'll change behavior. I don't know about a 50% decline, uh, but but we shall see. This is a year of, of, of you know me being surprised repeatedly. So I wouldn't be shocked if I was uh, surprised again. So as we look out into this future, we can kind of see uh, um, you know a path forward for airlines. Is this a time where we can pick out some winners and losers of, of this recovery? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny for so and it does make sense. For most of this period, the airlines have traded together. They haven't traded on individual company news. They've traded on their just kind of existence. Uh I believe we're starting to see separation. I think we're going to see more of that. We it's it's time to start thinking who recovers first, who recovers better, who who's it, it's kind of the way I think of this is whose sandbox is this? Who wants to play? or who is well set up to play in the market that we're likely to get. If you look Southwest, they have been very aggressive. Southwest historically has been brutal during downturns. They are vicious. And, and I mean that in with the most respect possible. And, and they're doing it again. They've added nine new destinations since the pandemic began. Two of them, Houston and Chicago O'Hare, are big United hubs. They see weakness. They are aggressively going for it. They have a great balance sheet. They can recover sooner. Uh, Southwest is also in talks with Boeing to take some of the jets that maybe Boeing can't find uh find a home for, again, trying to get a deal from Boeing. This is how Southwest operates, and this is why it's been such a great stock over the years. Uh, we have other companies. Uh, Delta is trying to differentiate itself. It's the only airline blocking middle seats through next March. This is giving up near-term revenue to try to establish itself as a premium brand or a trusted brand. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it works. Uh, and then you have other companies that are well suited for, I think, the environment that we are going to see. We, uh, Spirit Airlines is one I keep coming back to, that they are the lowest cost operator, a lower cost operator than even Southwest. They live and die on leisure travel, which is what's going to come back first. We have already seen them start limited international Caribbean coming back. Uh, I think, you know, Spirit may not be the best airline to own for the next 15 years, but I think over the next year, they're going to be back to normal a lot sooner than some of these others. And uh, I would think that their stock would, uh, would show that in the quarters to come. So, yeah, when you mentioned Delta, do you think we'll see that in their marketing of, you know, we're the only company that's still blocking middle seats, like how we see with Apple, you know, we're the company that cares about privacy? I think so. We've already seen it on their Twitter. Their Twitter was, you've asked, we're listening, was the message they put out yesterday. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think you're going to see... Uh, you know, ads with maybe, you know, if you fly United, you're going to have a guy with a cold next to you. You know, I don't think they're going to be that blunt, but I think they are really going to trump, to trumpet it, especially through the holidays. Uh, we'll see if it works. You know, I mean, I'm in Atlanta, so I, I, anything I hear on a, on, on Delta is going to be biased. So I can't really tell you if it, if it works nationally. <laughs> Yeah, I do think it's particularly interesting to see Southwest using this weakness to, to take market share. Uh, historically, it's, it's something this company ha has done. I, do you think they're an interesting company to, to invest in today, given the, their ability to, to exploit some of this weakness other folks are, are, are facing? 
Southwest is the best airline to own just as part of a, a conservative long-term portfolio prior to this, and it continues to be so. Yeah, this is their playbook. They can't do what they used to do. Where I mean, in their early days, they would go into a market, lower fares, and just you know devastate the competition. The competition is kind of caught up. So how they get their competitive advantage now is by being nimble and by using that balance sheet they have. So yeah, they can expand before United does. They can cherry pick some United routes in Houston and uh, Chicago, I think is what they're doing. This is the modern Southwest. And yeah, this is why this company just continues to be the best performer. It's when you have the balance sheet, when you have those strengths, use them. And that's what they do. They do that very well. Yeah, the, the quote that comes to mind for me is, uh, you know, for any of the uh, the Game of Thrones fans out there, so Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, says chaos is a ladder. And in this case, chaos is maybe a ladder for for, uh, for Southwest. Uh, so about a month ago, we did a podcast where, where, we, where we talked about Aircap and aircraft lessors as an interesting play on a, uh, a potential recovery, uh, and just a long-term play on, on uh, aerospace in general. And Aircap in particular has responded incredibly well to this vaccine news that the Initial day the vaccine news came out, it popped as much as 30%, and now it's up 56% uh, since the start of November. How does this change the story, if at all, for Aircap and the lessors? When we talked about Aircap, we said this really looks mispriced, and I think the market is slowly waking up to that. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure it's fully baked in yet already, but yeah, that jump is, I think, the direct result of people were too pessimistic. Uh, Aircap, basically, there's two ways they make money. They make money basically on their, or, or, or there's two ways to look at the business. They get to look at the portfolio value of their 1,000 plus airplanes that they own and the lease revenue they bring in on those planes. Uh, the lease revenue has been really hurt by this pandemic. You have a lot of customers going to them begging to skip payments, to, uh, to, to defer payments. They saw $430 million worth of deferment requests in the first half of 2020. That surprisingly was fe fell dramatically into third quarter. They only had $56 million in, in uh, new deferment requests. Uh, even if the airlines can't get profitable, any vaccine news... Any slow uptick in flying, that should raise revenue coming in and it should lessen the need for deferments. And uh, so th this is a huge positive. The other side of the business, the portfolio value, that's going to take longer to return. Uh, they did a $900 million charge to write down plane values in the third quarter. Uh, the good news is they think that's the bulk of what needs to be done. They have plenty of assets to borrow on, even with that write down, if they need more liquidity, they have good liquidity. But in terms of the state of the business, the more revenue the airlines have coming in, the better the chances they can pay their bills on time. And that's good for Aircap, which is a big, big collector from them in terms of uh, it, it, it's a major bill. Right. When you talk about those portfolio values, part of that is because, you know, maybe there's a little bit of an oversupply of planes in the market. Um, and that brings us to, to Boeing, obviously been a lot uh, in the news the past couple of years with the 737 MAX. We just got news uh, from, from the FAA that they're going to allow uh, the, the 737 MAX uh, to return to flight. Boeing's another stock that's up significantly since the beginning of the month following this vaccine news. Does this change that narrative for Boeing or are we still looking at an oversupply of planes for, for a while? 
We are, I think, unfortunately. I mean, for, for one thing, let's, let's, this 737 MAX news is very important news. This is the big milestone on the path for recovery. But as you say, there's a, a lot of supply, not a lot of demand right now. So it's going to be a long recovery. Uh, Boeing bled through $15 billion in cash in the first nine months. I mean, part of that is expenses due to COVID. Part of that is expenses due to the MAX. But a lot of that is it's just the lack of revenue coming in because they can't deliver planes in the case of the 737 MAX, and there isn't a lot of demand for the planes they have and the ones they can deliver. Uh, this is going to be a long process. They have 400 plus 737 MAX that they've built, but they haven't been able to deliver. Uh, we've seen orders canceled. I think more could follow. So this is the beginning of a very long process. But this, I think, marks the bottom for them, which is, or, or I mean, I think we're past the bottom, which is very good news with the way the stock has fallen. Yeah, I do think it's interesting for Boeing. If you look out over the course of maybe the last couple of years, you went from a period of where everybody's lining up to, to buy Boeing planes. There's a backlog. You know, they can't get them out of the door fast enough. And Boeing in that situation really has all the leverage as the supplier. And now things seem to have shifted a little bit where you're talking about Southwest putting the screws on Boeing a little bit and there being an oversupply of planes, them having to to reach different terms with companies. So, so it's interesting to see how things have shifted just over the course of a couple of years. And and let's be honest, I mean, this is how it works in a downturn. I mean, a lot has been made of the backlog they have. Now, for one thing, almost 80% of that backlog is the 737 MAX. So that goes to show you the importance of getting this plane going. But uh, in past downturns, we haven't really seen the backlog fall apart. We have seen deliveries slow because airlines will go in and defer orders. That's what we've seen this year, and especially with the leverage the customers like, with, be it the air caps or the large buyers the airlines have, they are owed compensation on the 737 MAX. They can go into negotiations now with Boeing and saying, we'll forgo some of that late fee if you let us defer this order out three years so we can get our balance sheet in order. That is good news for Boeing because it stays on the order book so you can post a big number, but it does very little for the health of the business in the near term over the next few years. And that's really the risk. People have really been overrating I think, the order book in terms of when Boeing will recover, because it, it misses the deferral side of this and the fact that, yeah, those orders are still out there, but if you're pushing them back three, five, seven years, they do very little good for the business right now when they need it more. Right, you got to collect those payments sooner or later, right? The entitlement to the payments is one thing, like when those one of those payments going to going to come due, right? It's it's a uh... It's like that accounts receivable, right? If those if those receivables don't come in, um, uh, then it's not it's not as big of an asset as you think. Uh, so so last one in kind of the aerospace uh, arena, we, we've seen lots of volatility in some of these um, parts manufacturers, whether it's Transdime, Heiko, uh, Raytheon Technologies is, is another one now more of, more of a hybrid business. So how does this change the thesis for those companies? Well, we've been saying since the beginning that we think the aftermarket is going to come back first. And aftermarket, for people who know, these are the sale of basically spare parts to airlines and other customers versus parts that go to Boeing for new jets. I still think the aftermarket is the place to be. Some new orders are going to come in, but for the most part, as these airlines ramp back up, they're going to be using older jets, jets in the fleet, some cases jets that have been parked where they need new parts to get them back up and running. This is the first part of a, uh, a comeback is going to be the aftermarket. Uh, Transdime is a huge player in this, and they are a company that really looks set up well. This is a PE firm that's disguised as an aer aerospace business, basically. It's got a long track record, 
buying small companies, getting better performance out of them, and including them in the portfolio. It's a manufacturer that was able to sustain 40% margins plus even during a pandemic, which is unheard of in aerospace manufacturing. Uh, this is a company that has always been a deal maker. It has rarely had this much cash on its balance sheet. It has really been worried about, you know, this is the rainy day, but it's got upwards of $7 billion to deploy. And I guarantee you, based on their history, they're not going to sit on it. I, I would think maybe they're looking at deals. Uh, they do not pay a regular dividend, but they have a long history of one-time special dividends that can be very large. I'm very excited as a shareholder in Transdime to see what they might do with this money. And I, this is just, this company should be very well positioned with their cash balance, with maybe weakness so they can get a good deal on, on some assets. This is a company that should really recover ahead of the curve for commercial aerospace, I think. So are they one of the ones that you would say, like we talked with Southwest, where they're, they're aggressive, they see the opportunity and they push in, where this is a company that, you know, the chaos is a ladder type company? Yeah, and, and they are looking for very specific things. I mean, they are looking the, – the way they get those margins are they, they are looking for components, parts that are valuable enough that airlines need them but aren't in demand enough that they're worth someone coming in and commoditizing. You know, I mean, you, they're, they're not making fasteners or bolts. They are making very specific parts where they either have patents, it's proprietary, or just I need it now but I don't need many. So, yeah, they, they're a tough company to get your head around because it doesn't – I mean, for the last 15 years, the, the criticism on them is this isn't sustainable. And yet here we are. And I think that's going to be the big knock on them for the next 10 years is how do you continue to do this? Uh, they're very good at what they do. All right. So, so that's kind of uh, our aerospace impact of, of the, the vaccine on those subsectors. Wanted to talk quickly about some other sectors. Uh, when we look at, at real estate in particular, I, I think is one where, where we have some questions. Bill Gates uh, mentioned that quote earlier where he thinks we're going to see a 50% decline in business travel. He's also forecasting that 30% of days in the office will go away following uh, the pandemic, which, which impacts both residential real estate and commercial real estate. I'd say from my perspective, last week we talked about Redfin and this kind of surge in demand for, for suburban homes, that sort of thing. I don't think that's going to turn around just because of some of those demographic trends we see in the, in the millennial generation, which is now the biggest uh, subset of, of U.S. demographics when it comes to, to population. They're right in that meat of when it's time to be a first-time home buyer and when if you're going to have um, you know house and kids and that sort of thing. It, it's the time to do that, and we've had seen that pulled forward. Um, by the pandemic. But Lou, what do you think about commercial real estate? You're someone who's been working at home for, for 20 plus years. So maybe you have a, have a, a different perspective on, on how ne necessary the office is. But do you think we're going to see one third fewer days in the office? And if so, what does that mean for, for some of these commercial real estate companies, REITs, those that sort of thing? Do as I say, don't as I do. Basically, here, uh, you know, I and again, I I hate to um, I hate to argue with Bill Gates twice in one thing, but I I you know I'm sure the workplace is going to change, and I'm sure we employers post pandemic are going to have to I guess give more thought to worker flexibility, but that was a trend that was happening anyway. And uh, since I can't argue with Bill Gates, I'll throw some other smart people at him. I read Hastings and Netflix. Uh, it's called The Work at Home, Pure Negative. Uh, Satya Nadella, who at Microsoft, so we can go Microsoft versus Microsoft, said that he thinks home working kills creativity. It makes meetings pure transactional. I think, I mean, these are the CEOs that are brave enough to say this. I think that that's pretty widely widely held views. I The workplace is going to change, but I'm always amazed at how resilient humans are and how much we get back to normal 
once we can. And I would be really, really surprised if there is the dramatic difference that some people see right now when we're stuck in the middle of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say, um, you know, humans are, are very eusocial creatures. We like being around each other and that that's kind of part of, you know, what humans like to do as a species. Um, and so I, I think, you know, being social is, is a big part of what brings us joy. So I think we're going to find ways to, to do that. Um, I, I don't know. One other subsector that I think is interesting to think about as well on those habits is shopping. We've seen for years and years and years this continued growth in retail and e-commerce, and obviously there's been a huge spike this year. FedEx and some of these other transportation companies talking about, you know, we're seeing unprecedented amounts of volume pushing through their networks. What do you think about the future for transports, e-commerce, and their role in the economy going forward? Is that permanently changed or will that normalize following a vaccine? You know, it's funny because if you go back to the early days of e-commerce, the stealth way to quote unquote play that was with these transport companies. And, and I think it's still true today, maybe even more so, because everybody, the Targets and the Walmarts are figuring out how to be omni-channel and how to compete with Amazon. Uh, some of this surely is a, a one-off. And I mean, what FedEx saying this will be a peak like no other. That's them saying that this is a special year. But I really think that you know, this was just a, a a pull forward of an inevitable. I malls will come back some, but I think a lot of this is going to stick. And I I'm really interested. I mean, XPO Logistics is one we've talked about a lot that is trying to help out these non-Amazon retailers with their with their logistics and fulfillment. I think a lot of this is permanent, and I do think it's a it's a one of these super trends that you can jump on as an investor because I be it FedEx, UPS, XPO, the railroads, some of the trucking companies. Uh, I I think this is a new normal. I I think e-commerce obviously it was going to grow. I I think even if it falls back in 2021 a bit, it's going to be at an inflated level going forward, and it's going to slowly creep forward. And I think. The transports are, are a necessary part of that and an interesting thing to look at. So we've gotten news in the past week or so that Amazon is, is increasing its investments, uh, pushing more into trucking. What do you make of the opportunity there for them and Amazon's threat to some of these other businesses, whether it's UPS, FedEx or XPO? So Amazon, just like with their uh, AWS, where they're trying to turn a huge cost into a profit center, or at least reduce their cost, that's what they're doing in transport now. And it's very interesting. I, I am skeptical that if I'm a target, I really want to give Amazon the keys to that kingdom. So I think for some of the big customers, there's plenty there's plenty of business for the XPOs. I'm sure it'll fit in some, but, uh, you know, I mean, at Amazon, I, I wouldn't want to be a middleman for Amazon <laughs> based on their history. I, I I think they can make a dent, but this is a highly fragmented market. I think there's room for growth here with everyone. It doesn't make me less bullish about my investments in XBO and FedEx and things like that. But uh, it's certainly, they need to be reckoned with. You don't take them uh, lightly. Yeah. So what I would say is when you see Amazon push into an area, I think... What, one thing you know for sure is there's lots of opportunity to reinvest and grow in that space. I think Amazon doesn't push anywhere unless there, there, there's significant opportunity there. So obviously, a lot of these stocks often sell off when you hear Amazon is pushing in. I remember when Amazon was moving into pharmacy, or, or, or there was Amazon Pharmacy News this week that sold off a, a significant number of stocks. But that just I, oftentimes we'll see some of these companies actually perform quite well. Like Netflix sold off a whole bunch when Amazon Prime Video came out. And obviously, Netflix has, has been a, a fantastic performer, even though Prime Video ha, has been a a success. 
Um, so a couple last questions before we go away, Lou. Obviously, it's been a, a crazy volatile year. Uh, we opened the year with stocks at all-time highs, and then uh, pandemic, uh, an election, vaccine news, lots of volatility. What's one lesson that you can take away from this year as a long-term investor going forward? So when I saw this question, I looked it up because I wasn't sure, but I have not sold a stock so far in 2020. And I mean, it, honestly, I, I sort of regret that because if I would have seen what was coming, I have a couple of aerospace investments that have just been clunkers and I don't know when they're not going to be. But, you know, at this point, they're down now, so why not keep it? But a lot of them that I probably would have sold if I knew how long this would be back in March have come back. And some of them are even in the green for the year now. And I think that is a lesson about, you know, and in part because we have trading restrictions, but by the time I wanted to sell, I was writing about them every day and I couldn't. The trading restrictions were my friend. And, um, you know, I mean, if your thesis changes, there are times to sell. I'm glad I didn't sell. And I think I, I think it is a reminder to have the long-term mentality and uh, ride the wave. Yeah, I, I I would have done better probably on some of my investments had I, had I not sold anything this year. And uh, and yeah, I think that, that that's great advice. And I think one of those one of the things that I think um, is a big takeaway for me is just things always change quicker than you expect. And then on the on the on the other side is when you expect things to change really quickly, they'll surprise you by how how little they change. And so I think this year we got one of those. And I think maybe coming out of this, we've got a lot of expectations for change. Maybe there will be less than we expect. But uh, but but we'll see. I. Yeah, just on that, I always try and think of like the world of like, the, we're always just riding on this huge pendulum. And it's amazing to me how little we realize that we're eventually going to swing back when we're going one way. And that's that's really the secret to, to investing long term is just to ride that pendulum and don't assume the momentum in one direction is indefinite, even if it feels that way in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And on that point, if anything we've predicted on this show ends up being wrong, that's a lesson to take away uh, uh, as well. Um, Lou, one last, one last question for you. We're having our, our virtual writers conference this week for Fool.com writers. For anybody who's a writer out there, do you have some advice for them on how they can make their writing better or be more successful? It, you know, writing is a conversation. And to the best you can, you know, don't try to look smart. Don't try and be too technical. Just... Just have a conversation, explain something if that's what you're doing. But just, uh, I, I, I think most bad writing takes itself too seriously. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm sure the copy editors would, do it, would disagree with that. But, um, you know, just, just it's, it should be a conversation. And I, I think it, it, it is the most helpful. It's most enlightening when it is. Awesome, Lou. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. As always, looking forward to having you on again next time. Always a pleasure. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.